Let's start out with prayer this morning. Lord, this morning as we begin uh, to climb into the Word, or before we climb into the Word, I want to pray for another church that's nearby. I want to pray for, I have forgotten the name of it, but it's uh, Luke and Emily Panter, or, the, or Luke is the pastor and Emily is his wife, <clears throat> church in Quinlan. I want to pray for Luke's worship uh, with a single pastor uh, sort of set up there at that church. I just can only imagine the challenges of that sort of leadership situation. And I pray that Luke has men who are coming alongside him that challenge him and sharpen him and speak honestly and truthfully with him and give him feedback that's not just encouraging but also um, uh, refining. Pray for Luke that his study time will be well uh, watered and fed and that it will give life to uh, some strong um, husbanding as he loves Emily and uh, strong fathering as he cares and tends for and shepherds his kids. And then, Lord, third, behind those two things, that, that he'll be well used in this church in Quinlan that we're praying for. Pray that he will point his people, your people, in your direction, in the gospel direction, and um, that you'll be glorified in that work. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for these next few uh, months and years that we spend together on a new, new chapter. Pray that you will be exposed, your work will be enjoyed, your people will be quickened, uh, encouraged, even rebuked, directed, equipped, charged, fed, fueled. Lord, I pray in all of that that you'll be glorified as a people walk with you and walk with each other in a meaningful way. Lord, guard us as you've guarded us for the last eight years from just doing church and going to church, but build us to be a people that reflect your holiness, your goodness, your son, and your story. Looking forward to this journey that we have together, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we are in the book of Hebrews. Turn in your Bibles. <clears throat> I have a page number for you in your ESV. If most ESVs, uh, the pewbacks included, that would be page number 1001. If you don't have an ESV, um, it's not the only version, but it's a good one. And if you don't have a Bible, you can have the one that's in the seat back in front of you. I encourage you to take that. I sent out an email this week kind of preparing families for or encouraging families to prepare for our time together this morning. And there were four questions in the email, and I'm going to pose those questions to you because these questions are fleshed out in our journey, or they will be fleshed out in our journey together in Hebrews. First question was, are we as families listening to God? And if we are listening, how are we listening? It's a good question to chew on, a good question for honest assessment. Secondly, is our faith dangerous and uncomfortable? Or is our worship journey safe? 
Third, are we or could we potentially be lethargic in our faith and worship? Do we have the potential of going through the motions? Lastly, are there some works that we trust in? Some things that we do or maybe don't do that we believe if we do or don't do will somehow contribute to our salvation? Do we have some sort of works that we hope in? These are very real issues that we will all deal with if you're not dealing with them right now in your journey of faith. And this book will speak to those issues. This morning, I'm doing just simply an introduction to this book. We're going to climb into the first verse and the first chapter next week. But what I'm going to do this morning in the next few minutes is I'm going to sort of lay a foundation for proper study. You may not realize this, but you have to be equipped to study a book of the Bible. It's not uncommon for most of us to turn to a book of the Bible and read a passage and jump immediately to the question, what does this mean to me? And you need to realize that when you do that, you can land anywhere. There are some important questions to ask before you get to that place of what does this mean to me is, first of all, what is God saying here? Who is saying it? Who's his inspired author? What's their context? Are they free? Are they in jail? Were they formerly a persecutor of Christians? Or were they one of his disciples? I mean, good questions to ask right up front. Who wrote the letter and who's it written to? Sometimes we can treat our Bible like we might treat a letter that we pick up on the street. We don't know who wrote it or who it was to, but we pick it up and start to try and apply it to our lives. That would be ridiculous, but that's sometimes how we treat our Bibles. So this morning, all we're going to do is we're going to deal with the questions, when was the book written? Who wrote the book? What was the purpose of the book? And kind of dealing with the problem of the people receiving the book or the letter. Okay, let's deal with time first. And I'll tell you right now, this message is going to be kind of the front end is going to sound sort of like a teaching scenario, but the the back end will sound more like a sermon. But realize it's all sermon, okay? Teaching-wise, let's start with time. We believe that this book was written possibly as early as 60 A.D. and possibly as late as 90 A.D., Some people have limited it to about a five-year period that would uh, connect with some of the language in here of persecution, that this would possibly have happened before 65 AD when there was severe persecution by Nero in Rome. Some people have said the book had to have been finished before 70 AD with the destruction of the temple because there's no mention of the temple and the practices being destroyed or being in in place in the book. It deals more with the tabernacle, which had been more of the the Israelites' wilderness journey. We're placing the book, what seems to be time-wise, or a wise place to place this book would be between 60 and 90 A.D. About 96 A.D., a man named Clement is regularly circulating and quoting verbatim Hebrews in in the, the area of Rome and surrounding area. So we're placing it between 60 and 90 
A.D. Now, the author. <clears throat> the author of the book of Hebrews is not clearly indicated. Some of our books say from so-and-so to so-and-so. We don't have either of those things in this book. So we don't know specifically who wrote this book. We can know from the writing of the book that it was written by a Hellenistic Jew. Now, let me tell you what Hellenism is. I had this conversation with my youngest yesterday because apparently he's learning that in school. Our school is spilling over into the summer, so that's why this was a regular our, our conversation that we would have right now. We're talking about Hellenism. Hellenism can be defined as the Greco-Roman culture or thought. For someone to be called a Hellenistic Jew would mean that it's someone who likely spoke Greek and who may or may not have even lived in Jerusalem or Israel, likely lived in the surrounding area of the Greco-Roman Empire or the Roman Empire by this point. They likely spoke Greek and they likely worshipped in a synagogue. This book seems to have been written by a Hellenistic Jew. If you remember the story of the deacons and how deacons came into practice in Acts chapter 6, you remember that two people were sort of feuding with each other over whose widows were taken care of. And uh, specifically the Hellenistic Jews weren't feeling like their widows were being taken care of like the native Jews. So a native Jew and a Hellenistic Jew are two different things, both Jewish and can both be believing Christians, believing that Christ was the Messiah. So what we're going to be studying these next few months and years was written, we believe, by a Hellenistic Jew. One of the clearest indications of that is the references to the Old Testament throughout this book. It's saturated with Old Testament references are using what's called the Septuagint. Learning all kind of cool stuff today. The Septuagint was a Greek version of the Old Testament. About 300 years before Christ, what's called the Masoretic text that was written in Hebrew was converted, or not converted, it was translated into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. If you ever see the little designator LXX, that's shorthand, the Septuagint. And this author uses the Septuagint. That would have been the Bible of the Roman Empire synagogues. They would have studied the Greek Septuagint. And that's what this guy uses. The context points toward a writer outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel. And we believe there's some possibilities that it could have been Paul. Some people, early church, some of the early church people suggested that it was Paul. But I'm going to tell you right now, this doesn't sound like Paul. It doesn't look like Paul. The language, the vocabulary, the sentence structure. If you studied Paul a little bit, you know that Paul is the king of run-on sentences. The whole first chapter of the book of Ephesians is a big run-on sentence. This guy, on the other hand, uses nice, tidy, well-crafted Greek This, in fact, is the highest form of Greek in our Bibles, the book of Hebrews. And the vocabulary is the highest form of vocabulary. In fact, in comparison to Paul, it makes Paul look like an elementary school student in his Greek handling. This guy had it going on when it came to Greek and when it came to rhetoric and it came to communicating thought. He's believed to be a guy named, or I believe to be a guy named Apollos. Apollos is referenced in other places as a guy who had a good skill, very competent um, in the Scriptures, an eloquent man. You may recognize that reference. 
Apollos would make a great candidate for a guy who did run with Paul, which this author did, a guy who knew Timothy, who's mentioned specifically in this book, a guy who would have run with Aquila and Priscilla, two other figures that are connected to this context, and a guy that would help us place this writing in Rome. There are some other possibilities. I want to just mention them, possibly Clement, Luke, Barnabas, Silvanus, and possibly even the deacon Philip. This guy, whoever it was, was a scholar skilled in Greek and skilled in rhetoric and skilled in the use of illustration. Some of the illustrations that he uses in the book. A ship missing the harbor. An anchor gripping the seabed. A double-edged sword. A wrestler in a headlock. And well-watered fields producing good crops are worthless weeds. This guy was skilled at rhetoric and he was skilled at a limited, and I'm going to come back to that later, use of illustration. He didn't overdo them. Well-used illustrations to expose the truth. It does appear that he's a he. The pronouns and participles used in the book in the original Greek point to the thought that this is, was written by a man. We can also trust, look at chapter 2 verse 1, that this man did not see and witness the ministry, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. This is important. Let me show you this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Now look down at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard. It seems that this guy is a second generation believer. As you'll see in the audiences as well later. This guy seems to have heard the gospel from someone else. And been mobilized into the ministry through that. He has a pastor's heart too. What you're going to hear as we journey together in this book is you're going to hear a pastor encouraging his people not with a pep talk, but with deep, important, massive theological truths. It is so important to see this given what you're going to find out about who it's written to. It's important to notice right up front or to consider the question at least so you can answer this by the end of the morning. That you're going to see the gospel is the medicine that he administers to the sickness that we're going, to sick, we're going to study here in a moment. The gospel is the goods that he brings, not a pep talk. Now, let's consider the audience or the recipients, synonymous. The audience and recipients seem to be known by the author, known specifically to the writer. There's some personal notes in chapter 13. You can flip over there real quick and I'll show you some of these. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be personal, but what follows tells us that he would have known who those leaders were. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. To be restored to someone means that at some point you must have been stored. He must have known them and walked with them at some point. Why they're separate at this point, we don't know. But it seems that the author of the book knows these people, knows their leadership, and he's going to know specifically some of the problems that they're dealing with. He knows, for example, just as he hadn't, that they hadn't participated in Christ's ministry firsthand, but that they were second-generation believers coming to faith through the exposition of someone else's account. Now, this is encouraging and helpful for me to consider that these people were a product of other people preaching the gospel of Christ, because in some ways that makes them like us, because none of us participate in Christ's ministry firsthand. We're a kajillionth generation believers, some of us, but not all of us. Some of you are first degree, first generation believers, but these guys are like us in that none of them saw Christ's ministry firsthand, but they came to Christ considering or through the exposition of someone else's account of the story. They were born and developed through an act of revelation. We sit here as a product of the same, and it's what we hope for and pray for in Kazakhstan, Jordan, Mexico, Commerce, Rowlett, we hope and pray for a people built through the exposition of the word. That's what these people are. It was likely a house church. Most churches were in this context. A house church likely in Rome. Some of the language that's used, some of the, the implications of suffering and the history there point toward a house church in Rome made exclusively or primarily of these Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. Maybe they lived in a part of town that was largely Jewish. You may be familiar even now. People may have congregations or groups of people that live in a certain part of town. We were coming back from vacation a couple weeks ago or a week or so ago. We were driving through Gallup, New Mexico. And Christy was driving, so I had my iPhone there. I'm thinking, Gallup? Does that have something to do with Gallup Poll? I mean, I just you know, looked up Gallup. And I don't think it has anything to do with Gallup poll, but I found that in Gallup, New Mexico, that there's a, a group of like 5,000 Palestinians living there. That's weird. But I bet a lot of them live in the same area of town in the booming metropolis of Gallup. So these guys may have lived in the same part of town, and that's why this church may have been largely, if not exclusively, Hellenistic Jew, as opposed to Greek, but Hellenistic Jew. All the house churches in Rome wouldn't have been Jewish only. Think about Paul's letter written to the church at Rome is clearly dealing with Jew and believing Gentile. You may be familiar with some of the passages like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's writing in the, the letter of the book of, or the letter of Romans to a group of Jews and Gentile believers. This, however, though, is written to Hellenistic Jewish 
believers. Phrases that are used in this book are phrases like, for you know, in regards to the story of Esau. A bunch of Gentile believers wouldn't have known about that. At least not initially. He uses imagery like the royal son of Psalm chapter 2 or the royal priest of Psalm chapter or the Psalm number 110. These guys were clearly well versed in the story of Israel as was the author. So as I'm studying this thing and preparing to preach, I'm thinking, you know, is this letter even or book really even for us? We're more like Gentiles. I mean, we haven't been raised up taking Passover our whole lives. We don't necessarily consider our story to be the story of the Exodus, although we should. But we haven't been raised as a Jew to think like that. So would this letter just be appropriate for some Messianic Jews? And I thought, you know, this letter wouldn't be limited to Messianic Jews any more than the book of Galatians would be limited to those who are living in Galatia. Or the book of Ephesus for those living in, or the book of Ephesians for those living in Ephesus. The good thing about God's word and God's truth is that his word travels and this book travels. And you'll find much application even though we couldn't consider ourselves having grown up Jews. There were likely 15 to 25 people in this church. That's about what a house would have held. And their numbers, turn to chapter 10 verse 25. I want to show you something specific about this church. I'm going to start in verse 24 while you're turning there, but the point is in verse 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The thing you need to realize about this church right off the bat is that this church is in decline. We're talking about second generation believers, two degrees of separation really from those, one degree of separation from those who saw Christ's ministry, saw his crucifixion, saw his resurrection. Your daddy saw Christ crucified. Your mama saw the risen Lord. And then here, the next generation of believers is, I don't know if I really want to go to church this morning. I mean, second-generation believers and their numbers are already declining. And they're neglecting the gathering of God's people. Now, the purpose of the letter. I'm going to start to refer to it, hopefully, if I can really remember to do this, not as a letter, but as a sermon. Because that's what this book is. This book is a complete Sermon. In chapter 13, verse 22, he refers to it. Look over, just because it's a page over. Look at what he calls it. Two pages over. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. That's what a sermon is, a word of exhortation. He says, bear with my word of exhortation. Uh, in, in, uh, uh, the, the original word there could mean Suffer. Suffer through my long sermon. <laughs> Listen to what he calls it though. For I have written to you briefly. <laughs> it's a brief sermon for him. He says, I've written to you briefly, but this is a sermon that I'm communicating to you. This is in fact one of the earliest complete sermons of the New Testament church that we have. 
It's much like other Hellenistic Jewish sermons in that it concludes with what's called paranetic instruction. That would mean application. Uh, basically, that instruction begins about chapter 10 and goes through chapters 13. And it's a lot like, if you think about Scott's sermon from a couple weeks ago, where Paul, in the first 11, book, or 11 chapters of the book of Romans, says, here's the truths of the gospel. And then he begins chapter 12. Therefore, in view of these mercies, go do this. Here are the truths of the gospel. Now here's how you go walk in them. That's the form here. This is one complete sermon. Now, this is seriously encouraging for me. It's encouraging for me because it's really not brief. And when we have 45-minute, hour-long sermons on a weekly basis, and sometimes I feel like, ooh, those are kind of heavy. I go, no, no, they're not. Not considering what a proper sermon is. If we're going to let this sermon inform what a sermon is to be, then there's some things we can learn from this sermon. Also, we can learn that this preacher uses many satellites to expose the truths of the gospel. He doesn't give a pep talk. He says, let me take you back to these properly handled satellites of the story and expose the truth using God's word. That's a good sermon. As differentiated from a short talky talk with three points and a poem and a sentimental story that's kind of emotional and tear-jerking, an email... There are no emails in here. I mean, I'm being facetious, but you know what I'm saying. He's not telling any sentimental stories in here. He's unpacking the truths of the gospel. That's what a good sermon is. I thought about this, you know. Well, a couple things. I'll I'll share with you what I thought about in a second. But let me share with you. I've used this illustration a bunch of times, and I'm going to continue to use it until I find a better one. The GPS illustration to help you understand. Some of you haven't heard that illustration yet. A GPS system... When I was in the Marine Corps, we had a big unit about this big. It looked like a big book. It's not like the little thing you have on your watch or your car now. This thing, we were out in the ocean in these Zodiac boats and launched away from the mothership. And we're using this thing to try and navigate. And you turn it on. And sometimes you might wait 15 minutes before it gave you enough satellites to give you a reading. And it wouldn't give you a reading unless you had at least three satellites. If you only had one satellite, then there's one thing way up there in space that it's sort of bouncing back a signal to this unit. And the reality is you could be anywhere along a trajectory on that line. You could be hundreds of miles away from where it tells you. So that's why it wouldn't tell you where you were. You needed three different satellites to do what's called triangulate, to put you in a little triangle, and then to tell you where you stand. That's helped me understand Scripture and a good understanding of Scripture. Because here's the reality. While one verse is completely true, one verse does not reveal the truth completely. A one-verse sermon can be dangerous. One verse properly exposed is going to be grabbing other satellites to expose it so you can triangulate. This is encouraging for me as I'm reading this boy. He's triangulated all over the place. He's got more than three satellites. He's got a kajillion satellites. Hundreds of satellites. Harkening back to properly handled contextually truths. Contextual truths that point to a good, robust standing on the truth. 
That's good preaching. Now, here's what I was thinking about. I realize in eight years, this has happened so many times. I realize that some people, if you're visiting or you, you kind of um, maybe listening online, considering visiting, that happens a lot. And you might be a little uncomfortable with a, uh, with a church where the preacher doesn't wear a tie and a coat. And let me tell you something. I don't want to make little of that. It's a weird thing to hold on to. It's really important. But I understand it. I get it. So if that is something that sort of pushes you away maybe from this body, then I'm going to tell you wherever you go, wherever you think God's leading you, find people preaching like this book unfolds. Please. And there are other churches. There are other pulpits that are doing this well. And there are many that aren't. Let the way this book unfolds inform you of what a proper sermon should be like and look like and sound like. Massive truths brought into focus with other Scripture. Nothing exposes Scripture like Scripture. That's good preaching. Okay. So now that I'm properly affirmed, feel good about myself, and the other elders at Crosspoint, the other preachers at Crosspoint that stand and deliver, man, we're turn here, turn there, turn here, turn here. It's exposing God's Word. That's affirming. So if your fingers get tired, just be encouraged. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Okay. Now, let me tell you, too, regarding purpose, that this book is sort of a New Testament Deuteronomy. If you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, you know that the book of Deuteronomy was written just before the nation of Israel went into the promised land. It was written by Moses, likely if not completely, at least partially, on Mount Nebo, where you could look over into the promised land. And it's written sort of preparing a people to go into the promised land. The writer here, Moses, the inspired writer, is calling God's people to remember what he's done, remember what he said, who he's called, specifically the people that he's made, and what's at stake if you're not listening. He repeatedly calls these believers, this writer here in Hebrews, to persevere in faith in Christ as he develops the superiority of Christ over the sacrificial system and priests. He's preparing people to go on to be with the Lord, to go into our promised land. Now, here's what occurred to me yesterday. Some of you are hearing this word, me possibly, are hearing this word that's equipping us to go into glory. We may go into glory before this book is finished. Do you realize that? I can't tell you how many, how many funerals I've done in the last eight years. I bet 20, 15, 20. How proud and arrogant of us to think that we don't need some sort of equipment before we go on to glory. Because some of you will be. Maybe I will be. This is good equipment. A New Testament Deuteronomy. Now back to the sermon. It is, in a, sermon, it is a sermon dealing with what I'm about to show you. A lethargic and apathetic people. I have to confess something to you. This, this is exhorting a church on decline. And I have to confess to you, I've been just saturating myself in the book of Hebrews the last few months. And I haven't even gone to any commentaries or any tools, anything out there that would help me understand context because I just want to climb into it. I want to get immersed in it. And this past week, I've gone to guys that spent their whole lives studying the context. 
And I've been really sort of convicted and encouraged to realize at the same time that as I'm sitting here looking at this thing the last few months saying, this is just a big monumental work on the gospel. This is the, you know, the truths of the gospel on display. It's a big theological masterpiece. I'm realizing now, because at the tutelage of some guys that spent their lives on it, Wait a second, this is an occasional sermon, meaning that it's written for an occasion in regards to a specific purpose, in regards to a problem in this little Hebrew house church. It is written dealing with a church on decline and why it's on decline. I'm going to show you five exhortations that have to do with listening. I'm going to deal with them briefly. I'm going to read a little section of Scripture And try and deal with them briefly. But I want you to see that all five of these things have to do with listening. Written to a bunch of people who'd stopped. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the first of the five. Therefore, little Hebrew church, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The first exhortation to this little church is, Listen up, dadgummit. You stopped listening. And you need to listen up. That's the theme of the book. Here's the second one. Look over at chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Listen up. In verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That's done Verbally, listen up and encourage others to listen and exhort them to do the same. Here's the third one, chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Yawn. The gospel again? Yawn. What else you got? I don't even want to hear that anymore. I'm tired of that. You've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's the third one. Here's the fourth one in chapter 10. Beginning in verse 19, stop.
stopping at verse 25 and picking up again at verse 32. Listen to this. Listen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. He could say, listen. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Listen, dadgummit, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do you think you do that? By encouraging each other with what God said. Listen. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, because when you're neglecting to meet together, you're not listening. You can't. It's part of being together. It's listening. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, picking up in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened via what you heard... You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. When you were listening, you were willing to suffer. You hear that? Pun intended. When you were listening, you were willing to suffer reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Listen up, dad gummit. Here's the last one. Chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks... A better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Listen up, church on decline, is what he's saying. Listen up because you stopped listening. Those five exhortations are ones that we're going to come back to over the future months and years. They are urgent appeals to listen to what you've heard. From these appeals, we can understand that this church had grown lax in the gospel. What had so stirred them to be willing to suffer was now less stirring. Maybe even a yawner. Oh, ho-hum. 
And he says, man, you need to start listening again. As the audience comes into focus and the purpose of the letter, too, you see the heart of a loving pastor. For him, scripture exposition isn't an end of itself. It's not just collecting spiritual, spiritual truths, but it is a brotherly service to a congregation of real people in real temptation of stop listening. As to the temptations... That first exhortation in chapter 2, it appears that some were drifting off course and the author is consistently concerned that the people will falter in their response to the Word of God. There's a burden that he has that they encourage one another every day. In the context of that passage, what do you encourage each other with? With what God has said. That's what we are to encourage each other with. The key passage for revealing the problem of this church is in chapter 5. Ironically, it's the section of scripture that most people avoid. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that in chapter 5, when you start in verse 11 and work on into chapter 6, then you get into a real sticky section of scripture and a lot of people don't want to touch it because it's hard. Ironically, that's the key to understanding the book. I don't know if there's a more important part of this sermon than where I'm about to go in these next couple minutes. So I urge you to listen. I'm going to read a section of this passage. Then I'm going to share some specific thoughts with you. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again Again? No, not again. Yes, again. Again? The basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again, again, yes, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works. You mean we got to go back yet again and say that you can't earn your salvation? We have to go back again and call people to this reality that it's faith in Christ and not by works, not by what you eat or don't eat? Not again. Specifically in verse 12 of chapter 5, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you Again, this rebuke speaks to the inclination of this church to what it seems is withdrawal from contact with those outside the church. You ought to be teaching others, instructing others in the faith, yet you're hunkered down behind locked doors like little scaredy cats. The reality is for this church, it appears that the truth has become terminal. On them. They go to church maybe just to, to hear the truth. And then it's just embraced and it's just mine. Not realizing you're equipped for something. 
When he says you're drinking milk, it's not talking specifically about the truths, but it's talking specifically about the understanding of the truths. There was a guy in our early church called Polycarp that connected this unskilled in the word of righteousness with the notion of endurance. That if you really get the word of righteousness, then you will endure in suffering. So if you really get propitiation, if you really get Trinity, then it will have an otherness to it. You will engage others with the story. If you don't engage others with the story, you can be talking about propitiation. But you're still drinking milk. You baby. Goo goo. If there's no otherness to your faith, you're still a baby. Man, I felt scalded after this section. Here's a specific passage that I'm going to tell you what. If there's somebody in here who doesn't feel scalded, scolded and scalded, then there's something wrong with you. The writer of the letter, the sermon, excuse me, he alludes to a passage in Isaiah that characterizes how these people were. Listen to it. It's in Isaiah 20, or excuse me, 26, verse 20. Just listen. Write it down and look at it later. Listen. He uses this ironically. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Goo goo gaga. Dude, that's not good. This church was born by their daddies and mommies teaching and preaching the word to them about the firsthand witness of the work of Christ. This church is born through the exposition of the word. And here they are, second generation believers. And they're hunkered down behind closed doors. We don't want to endure any tribulation or suffering. And he says, you know what? You're a bunch of babies. And you're drinking milk. They could be talking about some monumental truths. But they don't really get them. Unless there has an otherness to it. Unless they're teaching their workmates at L3. You hear that, L3ers? Unless they're engaging their neighbors. Man, that convicts me. I mean it personally. This is a personal indictment. This is not, Ben got it all figured out and I'm, you guys better get it on. I don't know of anybody in this church that ought not walk away from going, ooh, I need this book. I need this book to quicken me. Because I don't get anything if there's no otherness to it. Parents, if you leave here not realizing that you're equipped to engage your children with the truth, you're a baby. I'm saying it. I'll say it again. You're a baby. People who work in jobs, if you leave here realizing, not realizing that you're being equipped to engage others, you ought to be teaching others, but you still need milk. You're a baby. Man, let me tell you something. As I'm sharing that with you, it's passing through baby Huey up here. You understand that? Man, that's a scalding and a scolding all up at the same time. <laughs> and that's serious. We can be up here dealing with some of the most lofty truths in the world. But if it doesn't find application in teaching others, children, tomorrow's church, neighbors, workmates, we don't get it.
That's where we'll be. That's, this is what we'll be if we sit on eight years of the gospel in John, hunkering down as families in small groups, living safe. If we're truly skilled in what we've heard, it will show up in a bold otherness to our faith. We'll be teaching everybody. <laughs> and it'll be week by week. Man, let me tell you what God said Sunday. Let me teach you about it. Let me teach you what God said Sunday. Some of you say, I'm, I'm not much of a teacher. That's what you're being equipped to do. This lethargy in regards to the gospel and God's word resulted also in resistance to God's appointed leadership. He deals frequently with leadership in this book. He says, man, you need to follow your leadership. And that's a byproduct when you stop listening to the word. You don't want to follow anybody. Who are you? That could happen in a marriage too. Who are you, dude? Will you stop listening to the story? And you stop engaging these truths? Who are you, Joker. I don't need you. <laughs> they apparently were resisting their leadership. I already mentioned that they were falling away and not even showing up when the church gathered corporately. This church had regressed. They had moved away from the bold, fervent commitment, even willing to endure public abuse, imprisonment, and loss of property, and become tired and safe and disheartened. And here's the last problem. is they had developed an attraction for old tradition. An attraction for the old Jewish system, it seems. Actually conflicting with the word preached to them by their former leaders. And this seems to be a serious source of contention. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. There's actually, yeah, stay in 13. I'm going to read two passages for you or to you before we get there. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. And then chapter 9, verse 14. It's a theme in this book of dealing with these dead works. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then in chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. That's what these things become is strange teachings when you go back and try and grab something that's old and dated and superseded by this new covenant. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Not by what you're supposed to eat or not eat. What by, what, not by what's clean and unclean. Because those have not benefited those devoted to them. There's a problem apparently in this church that when you stop listening to the message, you start clinging to dead works. What to eat, what not to eat. What to drink, what not to drink. What to say, what not to say. What sort of music to listen to, what sort of music not to listen to. Are any of those things wrong? No, but you better not cling to them in terms of some sort of hope of your salvation. That's what these guys were doing. They were going back to their old ways of worship. 
We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, yes. But we are, you need to realize, a breath away at any given moment from making an idol even of the lifestyle. You realize that? We can make an idol of our list of doable don'ts or doable do's, and we can place our hope in them. That's what these guys have done. The problems of this people that we need to keep in view as we begin our journey. First, they stopped listening to the message. In the beginning, over here in chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke and has spoken through his son. But in chapter 2, in chapter 5, we become dull of hearing. God spoke, but I'm not listening anymore. And then the charge in chapter 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The second problem that's a result of those, that first one, they became hard to lead. The third, they fell away. And the fourth is as they let go of the gospel, they reached for dead works. It's a guarantee that you'll do the same if you stop listening. The solution, I mentioned at the beginning that this man provided for the problems in this church was to look up at the massive truths of the gospel. It wasn't a pep talk. You know, I said this was a scolding and a scalding, that one section, but the tenor and tone of this book is not a beating. It's really not. He pleads with them. He's urgent with them. He uses some, that, that passage referenced or at least alluded to in Isaiah chapter 26 is sort of embarrassing. He uses language like you're dull of hearing, you're drinking milk. But you can tell this dude loves these people. He's encouraging them with the truths of the gospel. It's not a pep talk. It's not a beating. It's not a tearjerker. He calls these people to engage by exposing the truths of the gospel. I think about the letters to the churches in Revelation. There's seven of them in the first few books or the first few chapters, chapters two and three specifically. There may be some in chapter one too. I think they start in chapter two. Of two of seven, two of them had gone this way. Laodicea had become lukewarm. He said, you know, I wish that you were hot or cold, but I want to spit you out of my mouth because you've become lukewarm. Did they stop listening to the message? And then there's the Ephesians that apparently listened but didn't really listen because he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. If you think the problems of the Hebrew church can't happen to you, then you're proud and arrogant. They may have already happened. We're not on decline as a church. But I feel like the Lord may have put this in front of us for the next few years so that we don't go there. I'm encouraged by that. Some of you as individuals or as families may be on decline, and this book will be good medicine. Some of you may not be, but you may be in the future. And God will use this book, hopefully, by grace and mercy through the work of the Holy Spirit to quicken you to the truth. Quicken you to listen. 
I thought I would end this morning with kind of my summary or my view of the book. Put that, that picture up that I gave you, if you would. I mentioned a couple weeks ago we were on vacation. We went to the mountains of California as a family. And we went to Yosemite and um, Sequoia National Park. Did you take out that truck in the bottom? Did you Photoshop that? Did you? <laughs> Dirty rat. That's pretty funny. I was like, where to go? This picture, just to give you a reference for size, what looked like a little Tonka truck in the middle was a full-size pickup. And it was, these trees are just massive. One of the greatest things about this trip is we got the chance to go to Yosemite and Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. In Yosemite, you just saw these amazing granite features. I mean, the place that invites climbers and sightseers and hikers. But on the south end of the park was this grove of trees called Mariposa Grove. In Mariposa Grove, there are about 500 sequoias mixed in with some of the largest pine trees I've ever seen in my life. When you walk through this grove, I mean, there's something wrong with you if your mouth isn't ajar. It's just massive. You feel like at any moment, a squirrel the size of a mountain lion is going to come jumping out. <laughs> Chipmunks as big as a Rottweiler, you know. <laughs> you feel like you got shrunk or something. What happened? It's crazy. It just doesn't even seem real. As you crane your neck to try and see the top of these trees, you can't help but marvel and wonder at what these trees have seen. As a family, we thought about the reality that some of these trees, not all of them, but most of them, in fact, were there when Augustine wrote Confessions, 300-something A.D. Some of them were there when Christ stood before Pilate. That's crazy to think about. They stood right there. They didn't move. But they were alive and there. They were there during the Crusades. During the Middle Ages, those trees stood right there. Those trees may have watched like Indians having bow and arrow shooting at each other, you know, underneath them. Those trees have been there for a long time and seen so much. They were there during the Protestant Reformation. They were there during the American Revolution. They were there during the Civil War. Teddy Roosevelt stood underneath those trees, and they weren't really any smaller. Think about it, Teddy Roosevelt seems like that's a long time ago. In terms of that tree, no. It's a wink of an eye relative to the lifespan of that tree. When I looked at these trees, I just thought two words that came to mind were majesty and truth. Now, mind you, I didn't worship these trees. I worshiped the God that made them. In fact, as a family, we sat underneath one tree at one point, and actually, we had a, it's funny. I'll tell the second part. I'll tell this in a second. I'll come back to that. It's funny as we walk through this Mariposa Grove. I, I want to say this second thing for a minute. But this first thing, we walk through this grove and 500 sequoias mixed in with these huge pine trees. And Christy and the kids were in front of me at, some, at one point. We were taking pictures and gawking, and I was back, got back from them a little ways. And I walked by two little boys that I would estimate were seven years old. And I heard them arguing about who was bigger. 
That's no joke. Two seven-year-old boys in a forest of two, three-hundred-foot trees that are, you know, thousands, in some cases, years old, arguing about who's bigger. And I thought, man, I had to laugh considering what it must have been like for the disciples to argue over who was the greatest as they walk with the sequoia of majesty and truth that is Christ. And then I thought, man, what is the church whenever we get crossways with each other and we start bickering with each other and we get our feelings hurt so easily and I deserve better than that and you shouldn't have spoken to me that way. You're like, wait a second, look up. Look at the grove of reality and truth that we walk in. Look at these massive truths. That's what Hebrews is going to do for us. It's going to be a journey among the monuments, looking back at the early years of his work with the chosen people, with the sacrificial system, his priests, his faithful servants, the rings of the story that should leave us quiet and humble and still and small and happy and quickened and fervent and at peace. That's what this book is going to do for us, I think. The other story. A couple days after our visit to Mariposa Grove, we made the couple-hour trip to Sequoia National Forest to see the largest tree in the world. This tree is called the General Sherman Sequoia. Once we got there, we hiked in a half mile or so, and we sat on a bench underneath the tree and just took it in. We had a little Bible study there, and this is what I was going to tell you. We had a mulligan on Psalm chapter 26, because a couple days earlier, we read Psalm chapter 26, where God snaps the cedars of Lebanon like they're twigs. Appropriate. We had that in the Mariposa Grove, but I was being a jerk, which that happens. I I was upset about something, and so we had a mulligan on the bench underneath the, the Sherman tree. And we sat and read about God being so mighty that he can snap the twigs of Lebanon or the cedars of Lebanon like they're twigs. And we thought, what an appropriate place for us to go. We're sitting reading together. We had a a chapter in Galatians to catch up on. And this tree, we're just studying and marveling at. It's about 40 feet at at the base of the diameter. Now, I didn't say circumference. Diameter, like right across it. 40 feet in diameter. It's about 2,200 years old and it's so large that it just doesn't even look real. And as we're sitting there, up comes three people. Two, I would say, 15, 16-year-old kids and their mommy. You could tell they were just hacked because they'd been dragged there. One of them had his hat on sideways and the other one wouldn't wear a hat, but both of them had a swagger kind of a scowl, like, man, I'm hacked. And just as they step out of sort of the regular canopy, if you could even call it that, into view of the General Sherman tree, one of them looks up and says, man, we drove hours to see this thing. This is whack. I could have seen this on the internet. And then he walked up and sat on a, the, the fence that surrounded the tree with his back to the tree. Had no use for even looking at it. And I don't know why that just struck me as funny. I was expecting a, a branch to come out of the tree and <laughs> nail him into the ground. <laughs> the hat sticking out sideways, you know. That would have been greatness. 
I was trying to decide if I was going to look for shelter. <laughs> it seemed irreverent and cheap. It seemed irreverent and cheap to look on something so amazing with such disinterest. And to take a shortcut, to even consider a shortcut. It'd be like considering a light and quick journey through the book of Hebrews. So we're going to take our time, and if the Lord doesn't return first, or we don't go see him first, we're going to spend whatever time he calls us to, gazing and marveling at his massive grove. Last thing I want to encourage you with, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you as we go to consider this as a family. Consider memorizing the book of Hebrews. We have a unique opportunity that we missed in the book of John as we moved verse by verse. You can memorize a verse or so in a week. You totally can. So I consider, urge you to consider as families memorizing the book of Hebrews as we go. To memorize the next verse. If you know we're going there the next week, study it as families and memorize it. And that'd be a sweet thing for us to tackle together. Now let me pray and we'll have our supper together. Lord, we, as we anticipate this journey together, I pray that we can be really honest about our condition and about our ears, about our diet, whether we're drinking milk or whether we're really eating solid food and whether we have an otherness to our faith that's dangerous and risky that's teaching. Lord, I pray that you will make teachers of all of us. I pray that we have ears to hear, that we are tuned in to this book as we journey together. Lord, that we will avoid decline corporately and that those of us who may be in decline are on the cusp of it or who will in the future, that they'll be equipped and led and guided and quickened out of it. Lord, I pray that corporately that you'll find a people with our necks craned up looking at your mighty works with our feelings sort of forgotten, with our vying for power or whatever sort of forgotten, with our arguments about who's taller forgotten, And that we can marvel at the greatness of this story that's been unfolding over the last few thousand years. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We look forward to this journey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm actually sharing our, our Lord's Supper time, our thought on the Lord's Supper from the book of Hebrews. I think it's appropriate. It's kind of connected to the dead works that it seems these guys were gravitating back to where they're kind of debating over what foods to eat. You may not know this about the sacrificial system, but a big part of the sacrifice in the tabernacle and temple was to eat part of what was sacrificed. The priests ate some of it. The worshipers ate some of it. Not for every single sacrifice, but many of them. And then there were also many rules about what could be eaten, what couldn't be eaten, what's clean, what's not clean. Lots of information out there about this food and diet in regards to the old system. 
Hebrews chapter 9, 13, verse 9. I read this. I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to look at chapter 9. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, not by dead works, which have not benefited those devoted to them. In chapter 9 of this book, he deals with a contrast between those bound to what you eat, what you don't eat, what's clean, what's not clean, in contrast to those who are walking in faith. This is going to condition or get us ready, conditioned for this meal. Listen. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made in this old first covenant, the priests go regularly regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself, by the way, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hear what I just read. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. You can have whatever special eating diet you want, but guess what? It won't leave you perfected. Not before a holy God. That's why they're called dead works. These gifts and sacrifices offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Once and for all. These priests can offer sacrifices for you every minute. You can watch your every bite, meal after meal after meal after meal. But guess what? That's not a sufficient sacrifice. That's why they're dead works. It's only one sacrifice that's sufficient. There's only one sacrifice that once and for all perfects the mind of the worshiper. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, hear it, from dead works to serve the living God. There's only one meal that's a priority for the people of God now. And it's this meal. The other food we eat in liberty, enjoying the finished work of Christ. We don't embrace dead works. 
It's an affront to the cross when you do. The only meal that we run to now is a meal that's not a work in and of itself. It's a meal that's celebrating an already finished work. You understand that? It's a freedom meal. It's a response meal. And it should be taken appropriately. It should be celebratory. So let's celebrate as we take this supper together. Christy just told me it was Psalm 29, so it's got a little tune up there, but it's okay. <laughs> she didn't tune me up. Psalm 29, that where the cedars of Lebanon are broken like twigs. So let's take it eat. This is seriously a privilege to walk this side of the cross. I hope that hits you sometimes. I mean, it would be an awesome privilege to be God's people, to be Israelites. and It's a grace to even have a sacrificial system to practice, to have sacrifice where they could fellowship with God, albeit cumbersome and difficult to go to the tabernacle or temple, albeit difficult to go through a priest or through a ritual. That's a grace. But I hope you see the scandalous grace that we walk in this side of it, where we walk in a sacrifice that's been completely made, a sacrifice that's been completed. We don't have any food rituals. There's no kosher list for us. You understand that? Food just being a symbol, a picture of the freedom that we walk in. Not freedom to go sin, freedom to walk and bear His name. We don't have to be bound by some sort of list of doable don'ts. We're walking in a finished work, and that's what worship is. And this meal is, man, this embodies that meal. We're taking of a finished, we're taking into our bodies, celebrating something that's been completed. And we're working in an already finished work. You understand that? If you get that out of order, it's not worship. It's an affront to God, in fact. If you get it in the right order, then it's called worship. Let's take and celebrate and drink this together. I thought I'd end the morning with uh, reading Psalm 29. For real, it's, um, I'm terrible with addresses, so I, Christy can remember them. So I appreciate that feedback. Psalm 29 would be an appropriate place for us to end the morning, considering that we want to be a listening people. We want to really hear God. A couple of the last sermons have dealt with that. It's funny, you know, meditating, really hearing and thinking on what you've heard. If you don't do those things, you didn't really hear it. And as we found out this morning, if it doesn't have an otherness to it, you didn't really hear it. So this would be an appropriate place for us to end. Let me just say, too, that this morning is equipping, sort of like reading the instruction manual before you use something. It's a part that I don't really, I'm a man, so I don't ever do that. But when it comes to studying the Bible, we want to engage the instructions and read well. This first sermon has probably been the most work for me, of any, maybe of any of the sermons, because it sets a trajectory through the rest of the book. It's, it's how you understand and interpret the rest of the book. And it's been pretty nerve-wracking. I told somebody earlier this week, it's sort of like when you move somewhere and you've been there a couple of weeks and then you got family coming and they want to see all the sights. You're like, man, I've only been here a few more weeks than you've been here. So for me, it's been a couple of months of really immersing myself in Hebrews, but I feel like I could be here years before I could really give a good guide. So hopefully the Lord will 
not hopefully, I know he'll, um, as he always does, make up the difference there and communicate to the heart some of the things that we talked about this morning with a proper introduction to the book. Psalm chapter 29 would be a great place for us to end. Let's stand and let's get real still. Let's get real still and listen. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer for this people is that we will skip like a calf like Lebanon over the greatness of this journey, this story that we walk in. Let's pray that you will find us listening. Pray that we will hear that voice clarion. Thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Y'all have a great Sunday.